as we've been working our way through the book of Micah, we've been focusing on Micah's main point, his big picture, his purpose of writing, which is basically to call out Israel for the injustice and impression of the powerful, to lay out the consequences of their sin, and then surprisingly to say, but even though there's consequences and punishment, and that's even exile and removal from the land, God still has a plan, and that plan is for your good. Okay? That's the big picture. And we've been in a section for the last few weeks that focuses mostly on that big, good plan of God. It's been a while, in fact, that we've read about the sins of Israel. It hasn't come up for the last few weeks. Okay? And right in the heart of this section, filled with hope, is a centerpiece, a central image. Okay. It, is, it is the focal point, not just of this section of hope, but since this section of hope is at the center of the book, the center of the book. In fact, I would suggest to you that it's the focal point of all the Old Testament prophets, and if we want to push it further, it's the focal point of the entire Bible. Here, we're going to read about an event that begins being talked about in the opening chapters of Genesis and is still being focused on and celebrated at the close of Revelation. Okay. It is center stage at the festival of God's plans. Okay. It is the headline event. In fact, it's so headline, even if you're not a Christian this morning, it's probably going to ring some bells. I'll show you what I mean. Let's read together here in chapter 5, verse 1. Now, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Epaphra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure for now. He shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrians come into our land and tread in our places, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men, and they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Let's pray. Father, would you open our minds this morning and by your spirit teach and instruct your people just as you promised so many times in the New Testament. And as we connect the dots between the days of Assyria's attack on the little tribe of Judah and our day, far removed, I pray that you would thread them both, connect them both to this central point in history of a birth that takes place in Bethlehem. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we sing around Christmas time, O Little Town of Bethlehem, this is where the title comes from. Okay, it comes from here in Micah. When we focus on this nativity story that we find in the Gospel of Matthew, and we find a little baby born 
right outside an inn, maybe in a cave or a barn, not a normal place for a birth. When we find him born, it is here that the scholars of that day tell King Herod that the Messiah is to be born. It's how the wise men find Jesus, okay? In fact, this is one of the handful of texts in the Old Testament which were seen as inherently and innately messianic even by the Jews. Okay, there's a lot of places where we read the Bible as Christians now that Jesus has come and we go, oh, wow, we had no idea before Jesus came, but this is clearly about him. This was not one of those passages. This was a passage of clear expectation for the coming king, for God's chosen, the Messiah and specifically for his birth. Okay. Now, what's interesting about this is a couple of things, a little bit of groundwork that we have to lay, and the first is the setting. We've talked about this week to week as we've worked through the book of Micah. Micah is a lifetime of ministry and messages edited together into a work of literature. Okay. When we read Micah, it differs from his original audience in that Micah was walking the streets, standing in the temple maybe, crying out in the marketplace these messages. And so the messages are most likely the same ones he gave, but they've been organized and edited for a deeper message, the, the life message of Micah, right? And so as we've done across the way, it's helpful to go, what was the original setting of this message? And this one couldn't be clearer, okay? Who's the big bad enemy in these six verses? Who gets named over and over and over? It's Assyria. Now that's surprising because if you were with us last week, the big bad enemy was Babylon. And I pointed out to you that in Micah's day, Babylon was a nobody, okay? When he speaks in chapter 4 of what's coming and mentions the exile, that is a hundred plus years off. But in Micah's own day and age, Assyria is the big bad guy who has already wiped out the southern tribes of Israel, or sorry, the northern tribes of Israel, and has surrounded Jerusalem and is about to take out the southern tribes. This is the story you find in First and Second Kings of Shennacherib right, and the attack on Jerusalem. This is the story that you read about in Isaiah when King Hezekiah hears a message from Isaiah about what's about to happen, okay. This is the setting, and it seems pretty clear here because at the end, it's when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our places, and at the beginning, what do we have? We have a siege. We have a surrounded Jerusalem, okay, in fact, notice what it says in verse 1. Now, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the, tree, on the cheek. Now, if you're Bible familiar, you probably recognize that word judge, right? It might remind you of the Old Testament book of Judges, these deliverers and heroes who God raises up to deliver Israel from their enemies, okay? But the word here is actually used clearly in reference to the king of Ju Jerusalem, to Hezekiah. And you say, well, why does it use the word judge and not king? There's two possibilities. One is not as sure, but is definitely sure in other places, which is that the prophets seem to have an aversion to calling bad kings kings. Because they're primarily focused on, forget about this king, remember the capital K king, your God. Okay? But more importantly here, there is a play on words that we miss in English. 
Because the word for rod and the word for judge are rhyming words. In fact, they're more than rhyming. They're all the same except the vowels. Okay? So it's the sepat striking the sapat. Okay? And so he seems to be making a play on words here. And the authors and scriptures do that for a couple of reasons. But the primary one is to draw a big red circle and say this is important. Okay? But nonetheless, what's happening to the king of Israel here, to the king of Jerusalem. The enemy has gotten so close, it's as if he took his own scepter and whacked him across the face, okay? That's close. This illustration isn't gonna work because most of you didn't see it, but there was a Jet Li movie years and years ago called Hero. And because of these great acts of service to his nation, this hero gets closer and closer to the emperor. First, he's 500 feet away, and then he tells more of his story, and then he's 100 feet away, and it turns out when he gets 10 feet away that he's actually a trained assassin, and he's done all this work just to get close enough to kill the king, okay? That's the same idea here, right? If you're playing chess, and the king is right at your front door of your other king, that's a checkmate scenario. That's what we're talking about here, okay? It's also tremendously shameful, right? That's why it's not being bopped on the head, it's struck on the cheek, okay? But also, it speaks of failure, of danger. In fact, as much as this is probably talking about Hezekiah, and if you want to see this shame in place, just go find the, the, the message that Shennacherib's soldiers give to Jerusalem over the siege wall, where they basically say, you are going to eat and drink your own feces and urine if you don't surrender right now. Okay, that's not a threat, that's a shaming, okay? It's a mocking. In fact, he turns around and he basically says to them, in fact, my king is so generous, if you can find enough soldiers to fill 100,000 chariots, we'll give them to you, right? It's just a mocking time. That's clearly the event at hand here, okay? But it is problematic and scary for Jerusalem for a deeper reason. Not just because their life hangs on the line, but because the existence or the purpose of Israel is also at stake. And this is what he draws attention to with that little play on words. Because Hezekiah is from the tribe of Judah. In fact, he's a descendant of David. David is from the tribe of Judah. That becomes significant as we return to Bethlehem in, chapter, in verse 2. Okay. Um, but there is a promise about the rod of Judah. A very old one a very significant one, one that predates Israel's existence in the land of Canaan, predates the exodus itself in the dying days of Jacob. He gathers together his family and he speaks over his 12 sons who were the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel and kind of lays out prophetically the fate of each tribe. And notice what he says here in Genesis 49. Speaking here of Judah, he says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. Gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, as a lioness, who dares to rouse him? Then listen to this. The scepter, same word for rod and Micah, shall not depart from Judah, 
nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. And then the ESV says, until tribute comes to him. If you have an older translation, it says, until Shiloh comes. And the reason is because both in the church as well as in Judaism, there's an understanding that Shiloh here may actually be a title, a messianic title. Okay. Now, some translate this phrase, until tribute comes to him, and this is what it is in my margins here, of until he whose right it is comes. Whose right it is to what? To the scepter. Okay. So like I said, this is messianic, and it's basically a promise that Judah will stay in power until the king comes, the real king. Okay. Until the Messiah shows up, Judah will be in power. God makes a similar promise to the household of David in 1 Samuel chapter 7, where he says, one of your sons will reign forever and ever. Okay, And so it's from the tribe of Judah, through the line of David. But now we are at the last of the lineage of David, Hezekiah. And it looks like it's all going to fall apart. It's in that setting that this prophecy is given. Okay, It's when, if you will, Israel is having an existential crisis on if God is going to keep his plan. In fact, there's a touch point as well, not just with Genesis 49, but with Micah 4, with what we read last week, because I want you to notice that it says uh, in verse 3, therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Now that makes sense. He's just talked about a baby being born in Bethlehem. Okay. This isn't the first time we've seen this idea of being in labor. We saw it back in chapter 4. And so notice what it says in verse 9 of chapter 4. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? That's talking about the same existential crisis. Right? Where is your king? Where is your counselor? Is this the end of Israel? Is this the end of God's promises? What about the Messiah? All of these are swirling around and it's causing them so much pain it's gone physical. And it's as if they're actually giving birth. But here we find that it's not Braxton Hicks, right? It's not false labor. There really will be a baby. Okay, and that's what we talked about last week is that the suffering is not just suffering, it's productive. And it does lead to joy. And so here he grabs that image again and he says it's going to happen, but before that happens is a before, right? Look again with me at verse 3. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. What is he saying here? The birth will happen. But first there's an interim. First there's a little bit of delay. First there's going to be a giving over. In other words, he says, after the exile, Israel will rise from the ashes, and so will the line of David, and from that line will come the expected one. Okay. And so this is what he's laying out here. But before we move any forward, any further forward, I want you to notice something that will become really significant to us this morning. Here's what it is. Who cares? Israel is surrounded by enemy armies and could fall at any moment. And here comes God's prophet and says, thus says the Lord, everything's going to be okay. Oh, not today. Nothing's going to be okay today, but rejoice, there will be a baby born. 
right? Isaiah does the same thing. Isaiah makes a similar prophecy in the days of Hezekiah. Sennacherib is attacking and he says, don't worry about Sennacherib because a virgin will conceive and bear a child. And to this day, Christians have scratched their heads and went, why is that a sign to King Hezekiah when it doesn't happen until Hezekiah has been dead and buried for hundreds of years? How is that good news? Now, this is why this is important. Because this morning, we are trying to connect Christmas with the civil rights movement. This morning, we are trying to make an association between God's celebration of a baby born in Bethlehem and Micah's big concern about an unjust people and the setting right of what's been wrong. But as we've seen from week to week to week, Israel doesn't just need a deliverer who will save them from their enemies. They need a savior who will save them from their sins. Right? That's the only way, even, even reading this, if you just strip Christianity out of your mind and just read this text, you still have to wrestle with why this matters. What's its significance? Okay. Here's the thing. God here has consistently said, Babylon is not an interruption to the plan. It is the plan. And Israel is having this identity crisis because that looks like the end of Israel. It looks like death. And so God says, I've got everything under control. I'm in charge here. And then he says two simultaneously paradoxical things. On the one hand, this is everything you deserve. You got exactly what you deserve for the way that you have treated the least and the weakest in your society. So now you're going to be the least and weakest. And then simultaneously, this is not what you deserve at all. I'm sending a savior to set everything right. Actually, we see the same tension when it comes to Babylon and Assyria because they are both the tool of God and the enemy of God's people. In fact, here, they're the enemies of God and yet what does it say in verse five? He says, when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men and they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with a sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances, okay? There's an emphasis here of victory, no doubt, right? The idea here is of a shepherd who protects the sheep from wolves. But there's also that same shepherding over Assyria emphasis here. And Micah will make it later in an even clearer way when he's going to say, you know what, this baby who's to be born in Bethlehem, it's not just for you, Judea. It's not just for you, Israel. It's also for the Assyrians. One of Micah's contemporaries, one of the other minor prophets, actually paints a picture of Assyria one day being an extension of the nation of Israel and a collectively being a people who worship the living God of Israel. Not under the thumb of Jewish jurisdiction, but in joy, right? This is the mystery of God's great plan. And to be honest, it doesn't stop there. Because as crazy as it is that God's going to solve this problem with a baby, when the baby does show up, he doesn't kick butt and take names. He dies. And that's the plan. And that goes all the way back to the beginning. Again, in the mystery of the words that are spoken about this birth, 
Nothing is more mystifying than the very first mention which God speaks to Eve in the midst of her own judgment and consequence when he says, one day the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. But he also says, and that serpent will bite his heel. Right? When you've got a venomous snake, killing the snake and being bitten is usually, you know, it's usually game over. And that's what it is for Jesus. His death is his victory, right? All of these paradoxes are swirling around. But let's now, with all of that in mind, focus on the question. What does Christmas have to do with the civil rights movement? How do we connect justice, as Micah has been emphasizing, and the birth of Jesus? How do they fit together? Now, this is no small question. Especially in our day and age, this is something that can sometimes divide the church. It becomes even a battle line between faithful representation of Christianity. And mostly what I want you to notice this morning, again, is the context. Maybe you knew that Bethlehem Bethlehem was the prophetic birthplace of the Messiah. Maybe you knew that that's why we focus on it in Christmas. Maybe you knew that in Matthew chapter 2, when the wise men come to Herod and say, we've come to meet the king of David because we've seen his star, and Herod goes to all the scribes and says, where's the Messiah to be born again? They go, Bethlehem. They quote here. But did you know its context? Did you know that this is Micah's words for Micah's time to Micah's people in the center of Micah's message, which is a message about justice. The question is, how do these things fit together? Now, one of the ways it fits together we've seen extensively, which is in the big picture of God's plan, this same baby this same Messiah, the one who lives and suffers and dies, also raises and will, will return and will set all things right. right. You may remember two weeks ago at the beginning of chapter 4, we looked at this hope of a day where the world is united in peace under a single ruler, and that ruler is none other than Jesus himself. Okay. So God's plan to make a just world involves a just king whose name is Jesus. And so our hope is uniquely Christ-centered as Christians. And we talked about when we engage in an unjust world and try and make a difference, we do it with that benchmark in mind. Not working towards it, but from it. Representing what will inevitably be when Jesus returns. But what I want to focus on this morning is that a Christian response to injustice has to be a Christian response. And for it to be a Christian response, it has to somehow be directly connected to the Christ, to Jesus himself. Now we get at the tension, like I said, that can divide churches. The question is sometimes the tension between the gospel and the social gospel the good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ in salvation and how it is that the church is supposed to live in our world. Okay. And all I'm trying to point out at this point 
is that the question is worth asking because the tension is right here. So what I'd like to do is suggest to you, knowing that most of you have sat with me through Micah and we've already laid a lot of the groundwork, stitched a lot of things together, we already have, if you will, a uniquely Christian vision of seeking justice in our world, okay? Of the fact that sin is rooted in idolatry and so injustice is always a form of wrong worship. It is a theological problem of the fact, as we have seen, that covetousness begins in the heart. And so we can never settle for just dealing with actions but need a change of heart. In the fact that we have looked at a hope that is going to happen. And so all we are to do is to personify and picture that and share that hope today by the way that we live. Of the fact that Christians can uh, have a way to think about and move through suffering as valuable because Jesus gave us an example in his own suffering and laid out a life where now our suffering, as it says in Romans 5, is productive, right? It's not meaningless. It's not nonsense. It may be labor pains, but it leads to a baby. All of those are uniquely Christian and completely dependent upon our understanding of what God has planned for the world and what he has accomplished in that plan and what he will accomplish but we still have a difficulty in connecting the dots between Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, and how to operate as Christians in a world full of injustice. I want to suggest to you in a handful of phrases how this passage and what we've been learning as a whole helps us to think about this. And the first one that I think we need to lay aside is the gospel or justice. And that's been, especially if you grew up in the church, a major tension of our times. And let me be clear here, rightly so, because there was an occasion where because of the modernist views of the world that we live in, a large portion of the church went, forget the doctrines of scripture, forget the divinity of Christ, forget the condemnation of sin, set all that aside, what we need to be is a force of good in the world, and they set out what they called a social gospel, okay? In that case, it wasn't Jesus who was the savior of the world, but the church who took his name. And so they were to be a function and an operative to change the world for the better. Again, that phrase by itself, fine, but also simultaneously rejecting that there was any power in the name of Jesus Christ or any hell that needed to be avoided or any heaven to be looked forward to, just the here and now and a calling to do good, okay? And the response in the rest of the Christian church, especially in America, to that was an up-in-arms response. It was a recognition that that was a removal of the heart of Christ himself, the words of Christ himself, the truth of Christ himself, our own need for Christ, and therefore was not a Christian response at all. But with it also came a consistent knee-jerk reaction to any involvement in the world that looked the same. And so what came was a division of churches, all who took the name of Christ but in very different ways between either being a force of justice in the world or believing in the gospel. I think successfully in just the five weeks that we've been together looking at the book of Micah, we've recognized that that answer can't stand. 
that it can't be either or, or, that justice is too close to the heart and character of God himself, that it's too close to God's entire plan of what he will one day do, that it's too significant, as we even saw this morning in our catechism, that very clearly we are called to be zealous for good works and to love our neighbors, so why wouldn't we care about their social life? So we need a different phrase. I would like to suggest to you this morning that the gospel and justice also doesn't work. And here's why. Because that has a tendency to take our life as Christians and our understanding and see it as two-pronged and equal in those two prongs. So we sound like this. We say we're Christians, we care about two things, the gospel of Jesus Christ and justice. And it sounds great but those things cannot be and clearly are not on par in the scriptures. They're not equal. In fact, what happens as soon as we do this as Christians, as we get away from where to be about the gospel to where to be about the gospel and, is another and, and another and, and another and. In fact, the, the way that it works is uh, just like that old Monty Python sketch with the Spanish Inquisition who say that they're about this and this, and then he remembers the third one and he starts over and the list just grows and grows and grows and grows. If Christians aren't about the gospel and the gospel alone completely, utterly, totally at the top of the list, we aren't about anything and we become about everything. Okay. And so that one doesn't work either. This is not two things that we're to be about. Let me suggest another one to you this morning. It is not that we care about the gospel for justice. We can't just make this great story that the Bible tells about our salvation and make it to the, a means to the end of the changing our world right here and right now. We can't make the gospel a means to an end of anything. Okay? And that one probably makes sense to most of us who find ourselves in an evangelical component of the church. I don't really think I said anything controversial to you because you've been coming here. Okay? If, if that were the case, you probably wouldn't have survived my own messages and emphasis in the way that I approach scripture. We believe here that the Bible is the word of God. We believe that the gospel is primary and that all who believe on the name of Jesus Christ shall be saved and that the stakes are high. We believe that as a church we've been called to go and make disciples of all nations and we do that by proclaiming the gospel. Okay. But we also need to recognize this morning that we can't reverse it and say that justice is a means the gospel end either. That phrase also fails us. For many evangelicals, for many people in our Christian camp, for many American Christians, our approach to doing good to our neighbor is like baiting a fish hook. We'll give you a sandwich so that we have a captive audience to tell you about Jesus, right? We will come in and take care of your needs, but mostly this is just to get our foot through the door so that we can tell you about Jesus. And let's, let's just recognize that's not actually a bad thing. I'm just suggesting this morning that it falls short both of what we're called to and to some degree of love. Okay. It suffers from a false dichotomy that basically says because the gospel is primary, we'll get there by any means necessary and nothing draws a crowd like handouts. When we say we cannot 
you know, um, what is that phrase? The till you know how much they care phrase? What is it? Right. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Right? That's a very pragmatic approach that says, all right, if we want to get a hearing, we have to show that we care first. But unfortunately, almost always, it ends up not being a true caring for people. We care just enough to get the hearing. I don't think this is a new problem. When James warns those in churches who speak to those who have physical needs and say, go be warmed and be filled, but don't give them food or don't give them clothing, although it looks different, I think the heart problem is the same. It is an over-spiritualization that says, forget about earth, only heaven. That says, forget about bodies, only souls. That says, forget about the life that people are living now, we just need to focus on the life that they could live. No wonder it resonates when people quote Marx and he says that religion is the opiate of the people. Because that's sometimes how we sell it. Don't worry about this life. I know it's hard. Just grin and bear it and eventually everything will be fine. So, not gospel or justice. Not gospel and justice. Not gospel as a means to the end of justice, and not justice as a means to the end of proclaiming the gospel. I would suggest to you that the right way we should think about this is gospel, therefore justice. In other words, it's not the bait. Our love for our neighbors, our concerns about their conditions, our standing up for the weak, whatever form it takes, is not the bait to proclaim the gospel, it's the byproduct of the way that we've been loved as evidenced in the gospel. In other words, justice is not primarily for us about changing the world, it's about the fact that we've been changed. We love our neighbors because God loves our neighbors. We care about their physical needs because God cares about their physical needs. We are concerned about their circumstances and those who take advantage of them and are even angry at injustice because God is angry at injustice. And we enter in and we bear the cost and we suffer difficulty and we suffer shame like we saw last week because that's what Jesus did for us. Okay? That's how Christmas connects. And this is essential. If you're not a Christian here this morning, this is why we make such a big deal about the gospel and we've talked about it for weeks here. Here is the people of Israel who are, if you will, light of the world 1.0, right? They were to be God's manifest people that showed his presence and glory and goodness and they were failing. And so how does God fix that? With more rules? With more instructions? No. With, with just discipline, does he go, all right, I'm going to you know, send you to your room known as Babylon. You're going to do a timeout in exile, and then we'll, we'll try again. He says, no, I'm going to send a baby. And he says some really interesting things about this baby. Look here in verse 2. 
But you, O Bethlehem, Bethlehem, Epathra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. It's just a tiny little town. In fact, if you go back and read the book of Joshua, you know, one of those sections we never like to read because it just lists the names of all the cities in each tribe in the lands of Israel. Bethlehem doesn't make the list. It wasn't populated enough to be on the radar of the tribes of Judah. But it is important by the time we get to Micah because of David. And I want you to remember that David was kind of a diamond in the rough scenario too, right? He wasn't the expected king of Israel, didn't come from a family well-known, just a shepherd family. And he was the youngest of seven brothers, and he was so off the list that even his own father, when the prophet of Israel comes and says, one of your sons is going to be king, he doesn't even send for him to come inside. He's like, David, you can keep playing. Hey, boys, come here. One of you might be king, right? Even his own dad doesn't see what God sees in David. There's another prophecy in Isaiah that speaks of this coming birth, and he says it's going to be a root from the stump of Jesse. What does that make you think of? It's new life in the midst of death, right? A root from the stump. How did it become a stump? At this point, the line of David is done. They don't have the heart of David. They don't have the glory of David. They're not obedient to the will of God like David. They're not in tune. They are disobedient, and like Hezekiah and uh, Zedekiah after him, they're going to be cut off. And from that nothing family, in a nobody podunk town, God is going to bring a savior. And the gospels really build on this, don't they? Because when we find out about Joseph and Mary, Mary's just a young virgin, right, who is engaged to be wed, just a handmaiden of the Lord. Joseph and Mary, when they go to the temple to dedicate Jesus and have him circumcised, they give as an offering two turtle doves because they're poor. They raise him in Nazareth. And what do people say about Jesus? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, you think Bethlehem is bad. But that's by design. There's a lowliness of where God begins here. And it continues. Look at what he says. He says, he is low but he says, from you shall come forth the one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Now, that phrase is a little bit mysterious. And sometimes when the prophets use this language from ancient of days, they don't mean like we do time before time. They just mean a really long time ago. That's just true. That's just good Bible exegesis. Okay? That's really how the Bible uses this phrase. However, it's not the only way the Bible uses this phrase. And in the Psalms, especially when it's tied to this phrase from old, it's used of God himself who predates creation. And so here we have the king from Bethlehem and eternity. But I want you to notice that in the context, that exacerbates the humility. It extends the distance. So not only is he a king who will come out of nothing, but he's a king who came down to nothing from everything. And then he's identified in verse 4 as a shepherd. And when Jesus comes and gives a sermon on this idea, he identifies himself as the good shepherd, the shepherd we're talking about right here. How does he define it? I am the good shepherd who does what? Who lays his life down for the sheep. And so that lowliness stoops, like it does in Philippians, to the service of man, even to obedience to the point of death on the cross. Right? That's how low this trajectory is, and it's a trajectory of love. 
but it's also a trajectory of necessity. Because for God to fix what was wrong with humanity, that's what it would take. Because of sin, there is death. And so Jesus becomes a sacrifice for sin so that there might be life. And that is the message that Micah gives to his audience. He says, you can rejoice because God is working towards not just delivering you from your enemies, but delivering you from yourself. Delivering you from your own nature that constantly pushes you away from me, separates us, tears us apart, leads to death. And Jesus fully and freely enters into this. The reason why we're so focused on the gospel is because even though sharing a sandwich is good news, even though a political victory that leads to a better just society is good news, it pales in the comparison to the goodness of this news. What this means is that we should absolutely be a force for good in our community in all the ways. But we do it even if we're just giving a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus. Okay. Have you ever thought about that phrase, in the name of Jesus? What does it mean to give a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus? Okay. One of the things it means is it means it's a public connectivity between a little act and a person. Right? That's probably the most obvious one. But another one that it clearly means when we give in the name of Jesus is on his behalf. In other words, this is just a little token of God's love for you. But why does it matter? We all know that anonymous gifts are just as effective as named ones. In fact, we know that there's a lot of risks with names. And if I walked out into our city and said, I'm going to solve all of our problems in the name of Justin, right? Everybody would go, well, that's great, but you, right? But it's because here there's more. Jesus, who's that, right? Here, there's an opportunity. How many times does Jesus meet physical needs and then say, but I got to tell you about a greater need you have? With the woman at the well, he has this exchange about water. And she's just thinking, I need water. We all need water. And he says, but I have a water of eternal life, right? He feeds people miraculously, Loaves and fishes, 5,000 fed, and they come back the next day because they're hungry, and he says, but I'm the bread of life. Most provocatively, in the Gospel of Luke, there's a man who's paralyzed. So paralyzed that he has no way to get to Jesus because Jesus is always surrounded by people. And so some loving friends pick him up on a pallet, like a cot, carrying him up onto the roof of where Jesus is preaching to a crowd of people, break through the roof of this house and lower him down so that Jesus can't avoid the need right in front of him. And he looks at this man who is paralyzed and cannot move. It's relatively obvious what his need is, and what does he say to him? He says, son, your sins are forgiven. What? We have needs, and they are real. And then we have deeper needs, and sometimes they're not so real to us, but they are just as real. And Jesus recognizes, and he'll heal that man of his paralyzing as well. But he also is not going to leave the greater undone. And so my exhortation to you, my encouragement is, 
every time you get involved, find a way to do it in the name of Jesus. Not because if you don't do so, I'll question if you're really a Christian because that sounds like the social gospel. But because what has stirred you to action, what has dipped you into your resources is the recognition of the greater gift God has given in Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I am aware that for some of us, there needs to be more justice in our Christmas. And for others, there needs to be more Christmas in our justice. But these things are not disconnected in your mind, and you simultaneously, while calling out this people for their treatment of the weakest and laying out a solution to fix it and holding them accountable, you simultaneously take care of the deeper problem. Only the gospel is good news to the abuser, and it's not the shallow and damning good news that you can keep on doing what you're doing. It's the good news that you can be forgiven and restored. Only the gospel speaks to the weak and says, we see, we care, and at great cost to ourselves we will enter in, and there's more. Because our love is just a reflection and a refraction of the love of God that is so much greater and so much deeper and is just as available to you just where you are. You may be in the lowest place of your life, at the deepest, darkest hole of humanity, but Christ came there, stooped down that far to lift you up. God, I pray for what we learned about in the Catechism, that we would find in ourselves a zeal for these things, but it wouldn't be the zeal of anger in an angry world, and that it wouldn't be the zeal of duty that says, if we don't do this, no one will. Instead, I pray that it would just be the zeal of joy of your children who have been saved in such an abundant way that we cannot help but help, and simultaneously that we cannot help but speak of the things that we have seen and heard, just like Peter and John. We just ask that you'd help us with this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship the Lord together.